Hello, dear friends, and welcome to our. And well, <laughs> I will say that. Okay, you go. I've never said it before. <laughs> Hello, dear friends, and welcome to our podcast dedicated to sight reading through the lens of historically informed performance practice. My name is Darina Blogina, and I'm Sebastian Mitra. And today we have a special guest. Another guest. <laughs> yes. So, could you please tell about yourself? So, hi, I'm Alexis Kosenko. So, I'm French flute player, as my name doesn't really show, uh, French flute player and conductor, actually. And uh, But I guess you meet me as a quality of, uh, in quality of flute playing, no? Yes, mostly. And what are you doing here in Basel? Well, I'm actually recorded with uh, Liangeli, the group of, uh, from Geneva, conducted by Stephen McLeod. I've recorded all Mozart flute concertos. Oh, very exciting. Very exciting. Very nice program. And um, are you enjoying Switzerland? <laughs> <laughs> I'm always enjoying Switzerland. But we had a really nice week. We performed all the concertos already. Uh, so it's quite a nice way to restart musical life and concert life, I think, to, with uh, Mozart concertos. And we had uh, uh, each program was given two times. One was uh, also streamed live. Um, and now we are under recording in Rien, in this uh, hall just behind the hotel. So it's very comfortable conditions. And uh, yeah, I think I do expect it would be a nice CD. Oh, when is it coming out? Actually, I don't have any idea. I suppose in uh, half a year or one year, not more. Very exciting. They're usually quite quite quick. We'll be waiting. <laughs> I think I just have to organize because I have many recordings in process and they shouldn't come out all at the same time. That's all. So you're really a special guest for us. Thank you very much. Why special? <laughs> because you're an important flute player in the early music field and it's a, I think it's a great luck to meet you. And yes, um, I was excited before this um, conversation mm -hmm. with you. Before you mentioned that you had a, um, because our podcast is dedicated to sight reading and you mentioned that you have a, you have a teacher um, for sight reading you had when you were studying apparently. Could you tell us more Yeah, it was in the Conservatoire Supérieur de Paris and there, there was a really nice uh, teacher for sight reading. Uh, his name is Pierre-Alain Biget. He is a flute player um, from Orléans, I think. And... Uh, I think maybe I saw him only one year, but he he had always really nice ideas. Of course, there was kind of traditional side reading, either, well, uh, classical music or sometimes Baroque music on facsimiles already, which was kind of, you know, even modern for modern food was actually quite uh, uh, very open-minded. Of course, more modern music, more challenging, but sometimes he would bring a canon sonata one of the Telemann canon sonatas. The ones that I have with me now in my backpack. Oh, lovely. So we can experiment that. And uh, and the idea was, was that we were two students. One would side read with the music and the other one would side read without the music. Brilliant. Just, you know, listening to his partner and, and copying like a shadow. Uh, and that's extremely interesting and enlightening because, because then, uh, you know, nowadays when you play side read or play in concert a trio sonata or any any kind of duet with a with a partner and you know you have to react to ornamentation or whatever and i think that this idea of side reading without the music a canon uh was extremely helpful for these two to become extremely reactive you know you hear an ornament and within half a second you are able to copy it 
without thinking. Yes, that was my another question. Was there a strategy or a logical idea behind um, yeah, this method, how to sight read? What was his um, yeah, personal guideline? Or? Well, I don't remember a strategy, but at least he was, he was always trying to surprise us. And I, I can give you also another, another example. Once or twice, he brought a, con a conductor score I don't remember what it was, but so we, we had an orchestra score and he told us, play what you think you would hear. So, you know, we had to, at first sight, to analyze a piece that we didn't even know, actually. It was not something famous. And uh, and imagine what, where the theme was, what would come out and uh, and change cliffs as well. So, yeah, that was. Do you say it read a lot in your professional life now? Yes. Yeah, I do. Because, uh, well, actually, I, I do side read sometimes in concerts. Uh, Tell may, us more maybe, about that. Well, it's not something that I, I, you know, it would sound like it's not really serious, but it, it's, uh, it, it did happen that I had to side read in concert because I, I was replacing or, and uh, it's not only about side reading the notes, it's about analyzing and understanding exactly when you're in orchestra or in a small group. To understand what's your place, to to also at first sight understand uh, when you might enter without counting, just analyzing, you know, the counterpoint to the fugue or whatever, um, and placing yourself in relation with the others. So that's also you have all your radars, you know, uh, mm -hmm. on, and uh, it's a very nice experience. Um, and as I said, read a lot also because. As a flute player and as a conductor, uh, I have to read and discover a lot of music to choose pieces for my next concerts. Um, so I, I do read in, uh, in many different circumstances. Uh, and sometimes when you read also a score, you have to read in, in different clefs. And I'm also used to reading old clefs because of, uh, you know, spending a lot of time with, uh, with uh, old scores from the 17th century and so on. Maybe a small change of topic, but um, as a conductor, what is your relationship with the orchestra as also being an orchestral musician? Well, um, my it's a nice relationship, of course. <laughs> no, no, it's, I think it's very, well, it's, I'm not unique to be a conductor who, who has experience of being inside but who the orchestra. But I mean, to be in the orchestra as well. Yeah, I, I do. Well, maybe less and less now because, mm -hmm. because I have less time for it. But, uh, but I mean, first of all, you know the psychology of the musicians inside the orchestra, but you also know what yourself as an orchestra musician you would need and expect from the conductor. And uh, for me, it's always a very important um, uh, thing to, to remember when I, when I conduct actually what is useful, what is welcome, what kind of attention. I can give a little example. Uh, when, uh, when the conductor uh, sometimes trusts the musicians and stops conducting because actually there is no risk during a while and he can stop beating the time because yeah, the, the car is, is driving by itself. So there is in this moment always a very nice uh, moment of uh, trust, you know, and the musicians, they actually re react nicely because they feel the trust from the conductor. So you have a first effect, which is the orchestra actually plays in a new way and 
some kind with some pride, okay, we are trusted. And then the second step is when the conductor starts conducting again, because then it might be that there's something important and we have to pay attention. So you have a new type of energy and concentration. So that's also something very nice. And I, if I dare to do it, it's also because I know from experience, from being inside the orchestra, how myself I would react to that. Okay. That's very useful. Mm-hmm. Mm, how did you become a conductor? And a flute player. <laughs> Actually, I started music because I wanted to be a conductor at the age of four. Uh, four? I, even before I was four, I think. Because I, I was fascinated by concerts that I could see on TV. And my parents are not musicians, but they were music lovers always. Um, and then they explained to me that I had to be, first of all, to, to learn one or many instruments to become a conductor. So... At the age of five, um, I was given a choice between a few instruments that my parents could afford buying, and flute was among those, those ones. So, yeah. And I think after just two or three months spent on the flute, I just wanted to be a flute player, and I forgot my dreams of conducting. And that eventually came back, uh, yeah, some 20, uh, 15 years later, so when I was 20. And I had, um, actually it started in Poland because I had started a collaboration with a very nice Baroque orchestra there called Arte dei Suonatori, based in Poznan. And they invited me to play first in the orchestra and then they offered me to play a first program of concertos, which was uh, CPE bar concertos. Um, and actually I spontaneously conducted the tutis during the rehearsals because there was no conductor, just was led by the first violin who was with somebody extremely competent, but also who has no ego. And he was, you know, rather than stopping the orchestra and saying what I wanted, it was easier to show it with my hands. And be, because maybe I'm Southern, so I speak with my hands, you know. <laughs> uh, and the musicians actually found that convincing and asked me to do it also in the, in the, in the concert because I was, they found it inspiring enough. And actually they became my conducting teachers. So little after little, I was conducting things without flute, you know, concerti grossi, other things, and then orchestra, uh, opera excerpts, arias, and then scenes and oratorios, and little after little it came. And then I started also joining in repertoire my experience as a flute player and as a conductor, because I never stopped playing late romantic or modern music. And well, as a conductor, for me, it's very natural also to to have uh, the same the same kind of repertoire. So I I might conduct Brahms as well as Bach, even if I'm nowadays more, maybe a little bit more known for Rameau or, or, or Baroque music, but it's not the only thing I do. And was there ever, did it feel very natural to start conducting or was there a little bit of anxiety surrounding it? Um, no, uh, I, it, it started because it came naturally without, uh, with, without really thinking that I wanted to do it. Uh, I did not have any, I didn't, I forgot about my dream to become a conductor. And truly, I did, it didn't come, it didn't come at all out of ambition or that I, I wanted to say something. I wanted to say something musically. And also, I'm very concerned when I play a concerto, for example, by what happens in the tutti. For me, it's even more interesting than actually concentrating only on my solos uh, so the organization of the of the of the orchestra is something which is very important for me so I wanted to put my hands into it and um, my question is how can you manage to play all the flutes <laughs> because you're 
you play modern flutes, romantic, baroque, renaissance, everything. It's fascinating. Well, mm, you, you can do a little bit of everything. You can do it not so well. You can do it well. I think it, it, it um, doesn't have to do so much with skills, but uh, with will, with time that you spend with it. And I actually really would relate it to speaking different languages. I'm, I'm convinced somehow that it activates similar uh, zones of the brain. And uh, I have a little daughter, she's eight years old, and she speaks three languages. And she's totally bilingual, French and Bulgarian, and she speaks Italian now. And I think that it is very possible to speak, to, to speak different types of flutes, actually, when you really... I did it from a young age. I started recorder, so modern flute when I was five, recorder when I was f 14, and, uh, and Baroque flute when I was 15, and then the classical flutes. And I always mixed them up. I never stopped to play one or the other during a few years in order to, to be used to, to speak one or the other language and change, you know, very, very easily. But what is very important for me is to go in each flute language that I went into, to go deep into it. Is it difficult for you to switch from one flute to another? Well, I, I guess that now I have some type of flexibility and a quick adaptation. And playing the same concert, different flutes? Oh, I do. Ah, I, like I do. modern flute and baroque, for instance. Yeah, yeah, it happened very, very often. And sometimes I also do uh, kind of solo recitals with uh, like 15 flutes, playing kind of history of the flute, you know. Well, that's a challenge, but it's not... It's actually not a challenge technically, but it has more to do with the time you need to adapt sound-wise and, uh, you know, for the, uh, then actually when, when you play such a sh short amount of time on each flute, then you start feeling really well when the piece is already finished and you have to switch to another flute. But actually this kind of exercise in, you know, gave me some flexibility. It's not, it's not an ideal, of course, to be changing flutes 15 times in a concert. It's just for the kind of documentary interest for the people to discover. Then, of course, I also like to do one concert on one flute and be really ideally precise on it. I think we should probably wrap it up. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Alexis. You're welcome. Thank you. Enjoy your recording. Thanks a lot.
I agree. Should should we be pitiless and do a tempo that makes that immediately <laughs> makes sense yes. musically, or should we be careful to each other and give us a chance in a slower, in a careful tempo? That's always something that I I would rather go for the first option. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. well, maybe not in every second test, but.